Books on Tape presents On China by Henry Kissinger. Read by Nicholas Horman. Preface. Forty years ago, almost to the day, President Richard Nixon did me the honor of sending me to Beijing to reestablish contact with a country central to the history of Asia, with which America had had no high-level contact for over twenty years. The American motive for the opening was to put before our people a vision of peace, transcending the travail of the Vietnam War and the ominous vistas of the Cold War. China, though technically an ally of the Soviet Union, was in quest of maneuvering room to resist a threatened attack from Moscow. In the interval, I have been to China more than fifty times. Like many visitors over the centuries, I have come to admire the Chinese people, their endurance, their subtlety, their family sense, and the culture they represent. At the same time, all my life I have reflected on the building of peace, largely from an American perspective. I have had the good luck of being able to pursue these two strands of thinking simultaneously as a senior official. As a carrier of messages, and as a scholar, this book is an effort, based in part on conversations with Chinese leaders, to explain the conceptual way the Chinese think about problems of peace and war and international order, and its relationship to the more pragmatic, case-by-case -case American approach. Different histories and cultures produce occasionally. Divergent conclusions. I do not always agree with the Chinese perspective, nor will every reader. But it is necessary to understand it, since China will play such a big role in the world that is emerging in the 21st century. Since my first visit, China has become an economic superpower and a major factor in shaping the global political order. The United States has prevailed in the Cold War. The relationship between China and the United States has become a central element in the quest for world peace and global well-being. Eight American presidents and four generations of Chinese leaders have managed this delicate relationship in an astonishingly consistent manner, considering the difference in starting points. Both sides have refused to permit historic legacies. Or different conceptions of domestic order, to interrupt their essentially cooperative relationship. It has been a complex journey, for both societies believe they represent unique values. American exceptionalism is missionary. It holds that the United States has an obligation to spread its values to every part of the world. China's exceptionalism is cultural. China does not proselytize. It does not claim that its contemporary institutions are relevant outside China. But it is the heir of the Middle Kingdom tradition, which formally graded all other states as various levels of tributaries, based on their approximation to Chinese cultural and political forms. In other words, a kind of cultural universality. A primary focus of this book is the interaction 
between Chinese and American leaders since the People's Republic of China was founded in 1949. Both in and out of government, I have kept records of my conversations with four generations of Chinese leaders, and have drawn on them as a primary source in writing this book. This book could not have been written without the dedicated and able assistance of associates and of friends who permitted me to impose on them for help. Skyler Shelton was indispensable. He came to my attention eight years ago, when Professor John Gaddis of Yale recommended him as one of his ablest students. When I started this project, I asked him to take a two-month leave from his law firm. He did so, and in the process became so involved. That he saw the effort through to its end a year later. Schuyler undertook much of the basic research. He helped with the translation of Chinese texts, and even more with penetrating the implications of some of the subtler ones. He was indefatigable during the editing and proofreading phase. I have never had a better research associate, and very rarely one as good. It has been my good fortune to have Stephanie Junger Moat work with me for a decade across the gamut of my activities. She was what in baseball they would call the essential utility player. She did research and some editing, and was the principal liaison with the publisher. She checked all the end notes. She helped coordinate the typing and never hesitated to pitch in when deadlines approached. Her crucial contribution was reinforced by her charm. And diplomatic skill. Harry Evans edited White House Years thirty years ago. He permitted me to impose on our friendship to go over the entire manuscript. His editorial and structural suggestions were numerous and wise. Teresa Amantia and Jody Williams typed the manuscript many times over, and spent many evenings and weekends helping meet deadlines. Their good cheer. Efficiency and sharp eye for detail were vital. Stapleton Roy, former ambassador to China and distinguished China scholar, Winston Lord, my associate during the opening to China, and later ambassador to China, and Dick Veets, my literary executor, read several chapters and made insightful comments. John Vandenhuvel provided helpful research on several chapters. Publishing with the Penguin Press was a happy experience. Anne Godoff was always available, ever insightful, never harassing, and fun to be with. Bruce Giffords, Noiren Lucas, and Tori Close expertly shepherded the book through the editorial production process. Fred Chase copy edited the manuscript with care and efficiency. Laura Stickney was the book's principal editor. Young enough to be my granddaughter, she was in no way intimidated by the author. She overcame her reservations about my political views sufficiently that I came to look forward to her occasionally acerbic and always incisive comments in the margins of the manuscript. She was indefatigable, perceptive, and vastly helpful. To all these people, I am immensely grateful. The governmental papers on which I drew. Have all been declassified for some time. I would like to thank, in particular, the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars Cold War International History Project for permission to use extended excerpts from their archive of declassified Russian and Chinese documents. The Carter Library, 
helpfully made available many of the transcripts of meetings with Chinese leaders during the Carter presidency, and the Reagan Library provided numerous useful documents from their files. Needless to say, the shortcomings of the book are my own. As always, over half a century, my wife Nancy provided her staunch moral and intellectual support amidst the solitude authors, or at least this author, generate around themselves when writing. She read most of the chapters and made innumerable important suggestions. I have dedicated On China to Annette and Oscar de la Renta. I started the book in their home in Punta Cana and finished it there. Their hospitality has been only one facet of a friendship that has added joy and depth to my life. Henry Kissinger, New York, January 2011. Prologue. In October 1962, China's revolutionary leader Mao Zedong summoned his top military and political commanders to meet with him in Beijing. Two thousand miles to the west, in the forbidding and sparsely populated terrain of the Himalayas, Chinese and Indian troops were locked in a standoff over the two countries' disputed border. The dispute arose over different versions of history. India claimed the frontier demarcated during British rule. China, the limits of Imperial China. India had deployed its outposts to the edge of its conception of the border. China. Had surrounded the Indian positions. Attempts to negotiate a territorial settlement had foundered. Mao had decided to break the stalemate. He reached far back into the classical Chinese tradition that he was otherwise in the process of dismantling. China and India, Mao told his commanders, had previously fought one and a half wars. Beijing could draw operational lessons from each. The first war had occurred over 1,300 years earlier, during the Tang Dynasty, 618 to 907, when China dispatched troops to support an Indian kingdom against an illegitimate and aggressive rival. After China's intervention, the two countries had enjoyed centuries of flourishing religious and economic exchange. The lesson learned from the ancient campaign, as Mao described it, was that China and India were not doomed to perpetual enmity. They could enjoy a long period of peace again, but to do so, China had to use force to knock India back to the negotiating table. The half war, in Mao's mind, had taken place 700 years later, when the Mongol ruler Timurlane sacked Delhi. Mao reasoned that since Mongolia and China were then part of the same political entity, this was a half Sino-Indian war. Timurlane had won a significant victory, but once in India, his army had killed over 100,000 prisoners. This time, Mao enjoined his Chinese forces to be restrained and principled. No one in Mao's audience. The Communist Party leadership of a revolutionary new China, proclaiming its intent to remake the international order and abolish China's own feudal past, seems to have questioned the relevance of these ancient precedents to China's current strategic imperatives.
Planning for an attack continued on the basis of the principles Mao had outlined. Weeks later, the offensive proceeded much as he described. China executed a sudden, devastating blow on the Indian positions and then retreated to the previous line of control, even going so far as to return the captured Indian heavy weaponry. In no other country is it conceivable that a modern leader would initiate a major national undertaking by invoking strategic principles from a millennium-old event, nor that he could confidently expect his colleagues to understand the significance of his allusions. Yet China is singular. No other country can claim so long a continuous civilization or such an intimate link to its ancient past and classical principles of strategy and statesmanship. Other societies, the United States included, have claimed universal applicability for their values and institutions. Still, none equals China in persisting and persuading its neighbors to acquiesce in such an elevated conception of its world role for so long and in the face of so many historical vicissitudes. From the emergence of China as a unified state in the 3rd century BC until the collapse of the Qing dynasty in 1912, China stood at the center of an East Asian international system of remarkable durability. The Chinese emperor was conceived of and recognized by most neighboring states as the pinnacle of a universal political hierarchy, with all other states' rulers theoretically serving as vassals. Chinese language, culture, and political institutions were the hallmarks of civilization, such that even regional rivals and foreign conquerors adopted them to varying degrees as a sign of their own legitimacy, often as a first step to being subsumed within China. The traditional cosmology endured despite catastrophes and centuries-long periods of political decay. Even when China was weak or divided, its centrality remained the touchstone of regional legitimacy. Aspirants, both Chinese and foreign, vied to unify or conquer it, then ruled from the Chinese capital without challenging the basic premise that it was the center of the universe. While other countries were named after ethnic groups or geographical landmarks, China called itself Zhongguo, the Middle Kingdom, or a central country. Note, Huaxia and Zhonghua, other common appellations for China, have no precise English meaning, but carry the connotation of a magnificent and prosperous realm of civilization. Any attempt to understand China's 20th century diplomacy or its 21st century world role must begin, even at the cost of some potential oversimplification, with a basic appreciation of the traditional context. Chapter 1. The Singularity of China Societies and nations tend to think of themselves as eternal, they also cherish a tale of their origin. A special feature of Chinese civilization is that it seems to have no beginning. It appears in history, less as a conventional nation-state, 
than a permanent natural phenomenon. In the tale of the Yellow Emperor, revered by many Chinese as the legendary founding ruler, China seems already to exist. When the Yellow Emperor appears in myth, Chinese civilization has fallen into chaos. Competing princes harass each other and the people, yet an enfeebled ruler fails to maintain order. Levying an army, the new hero pacifies the realm and is acclaimed as emperor. The Yellow Emperor has gone down in history as a founding hero, yet in the founding myth, he is re-establishing, not creating, an empire. China predated him. It strides into the historical consciousness as an established state, requiring only restoration, not creation. This paradox of Chinese history recurs with the ancient sage Confucius. Again, he is seen as the founder of a culture, although he stressed that he had invented nothing, that he was merely trying to reinvigorate the principles of harmony, which had once existed in the Golden Age, but had been lost in Confucius's own era of political chaos. Reflecting on the paradox of China's origins, the 19th-century missionary and traveler, the Abbé Régis Évariste Huc, observed. Chinese civilization originates in an antiquity so remote that we vainly endeavor to discover its commencement. There are no traces of the state of infancy among this people. This is a very peculiar fact respecting China. We are accustomed in the history of nations to find some well-defined point of departure and the historic documents, traditions, and monuments that remain to us generally permit us to follow almost step by step the progress of civilization to be present at its birth, to watch its development, its onward march, and in many cases, its subsequent decay and fall. But it is not thus with the Chinese. They seem to have been always living in the same stage of advancement as in the present day. And the data of antiquity are such as to confirm that opinion. When Chinese written characters first evolved, during the Shang Dynasty in the second millennium BC, Ancient Egypt was at the height of its glory. The great city-states of classical Greece had not yet emerged, and Rome was millennia away. Yet the direct descendant of the Shang writing system is still used by well over a billion people today. Chinese today can understand inscriptions written in the age of Confucius. Contemporary Chinese books and conversations are enriched by centuries-old aphorisms citing ancient battles and court intrigues. At the same time, Chinese history featured many periods of civil war, interregnum, and chaos. After each collapse, the Chinese state reconstituted itself as if by some immutable law of nature. At each stage, a new, uniting figure emerged, following essentially the precedent of the Yellow Emperor, to subdue his rivals and reunify China, and sometimes enlarge its bounds. The famous opening of The Romance of the Three Kingdoms, a 14th-century epic novel treasured by centuries of Chinese, including Mao, who is said to have poured over it almost obsessively in his youth, evokes this continuous rhythm. The empire long divided must unite. Long united must divide, 
thus it has ever been. Each period of disunity was viewed as an aberration. Each new dynasty reached back to the previous dynasty's principles of governance in order to re-establish continuity. The fundamental precepts of Chinese culture endured, tested by the strain of periodic calamity. Before the seminal event of Chinese unification in 221 BC, there had been a millennium of dynastic rule that gradually disintegrated as the feudal subdivisions evolved from autonomy to independence. The culmination was two and a half centuries of turmoil, recorded in history as the Warring States Period, 475 to 221 BC. Its European equivalent would be the interregnum between the Treaty of Westphalia in 1648 and the end of the Second World War, when a multiplicity of European states was struggling for preeminence within the framework of the balance of power. After 221 BC, China maintained the ideal of empire and unity, but followed the practice of fracturing, then reuniting, in cycles sometimes lasting several hundred years. When the state fractured, wars between the various components were fought savagely. Mao once claimed that the population of China declined from 50 million to 10 million during the so-called Three Kingdoms period, A.D. 220 to 80. And the conflict among the contending groups between the two world wars of the 20th century was extremely bloody as well. At its ultimate extent, the Chinese cultural sphere stretched over a continental area much larger than any European state, indeed about the size of continental Europe. Chinese language and culture, and the emperor's political writ, expanded to every known terrain, from the steppe lands and pine forests in the north shading into Siberia, to the tropical jungles and terraced rice farms in the south, from the East Coast, with its canals, ports, and fishing villages, to the stark deserts of Central Asia and the ice-capped peaks of the Himalayan frontier. The extent and variety of this territory bolstered the sense that China was a world unto itself. It supported a conception of the emperor as a figure of universal consequence, presiding over Tian Xia, or All Under Heaven. The Era of Chinese Preeminence Through many millennia of Chinese civilization, China was never obliged to deal with other countries or civilizations that were comparable to it in scale and sophistication. India was known to the Chinese, as Mao later noted, but for much of history it was divided into separate kingdoms. The two civilizations exchanged goods and Buddhist influences along the Silk Road but were elsewhere walled off from casual contact by the almost impenetrable Himalayas and the Tibetan Plateau. The massive and forbidding deserts of Central Asia separated China from the Near Eastern cultures of Persia and Babylonia, and even more from the Roman Empire. Trade caravans undertook intermittent journeys, but China as a society did not engage societies of comparable scale and achievement. Though China and Japan 
shared a number of core cultural and political institutions, neither was prepared to recognize the other's superiority. Their solution was to curtail contact for centuries at a time. Europe was even further away, in what the Chinese considered the Western Oceans. By definition, inaccessible to Chinese culture, and pitiably incapable of acquiring it, as the emperor told the British envoy in 1793. The territorial claims of the Chinese Empire stopped at the water's edge. As early as the Song Dynasty, 960 to 1279, China led the world in nautical technology. Its fleets could have carried the empire into an era of conquest and exploration. Yet China acquired no overseas colonies, and showed relatively little interest in the countries beyond its coast. It developed no rationale for venturing abroad to convert the barbarians to Confucian principles or Buddhist virtues. When the conquering Mongols commandeered the Song fleet and its experienced captains, they mounted two attempted invasions of Japan. Both were turned back by inclement weather, the kamikaze, or divine wind, of Japanese lore. Yet when the Mongol dynasty collapsed, the expeditions, though technically feasible, were never again attempted. No Chinese leader ever articulated a rationale for why China would want to control the Japanese archipelago. But in the early years of the Ming Dynasty, between 1405 and 1433. China launched one of history's most remarkable and mysterious naval enterprises. Admiral Zheng He set out in fleets of technologically unparalleled treasure ships to destinations as far as Java, India, the Horn of Africa, and the Strait of Hormuz. At the time of Zheng's voyages, the European age of exploration had not yet begun. China's fleet. Possessed what would have seemed an unbridgeable technological advantage, in the size, sophistication, and number of its vessels, it dwarfed the Spanish Armada, which was still 150 years away. Historians still debate the actual purpose of these missions. Deng He was a singular figure in the age of exploration, a Chinese Muslim eunuch conscripted into imperial service as a child. He fits no obvious historical precedent. At each stop on his journeys, he formally proclaimed the magnificence of China's new emperor, bestowed lavish gifts on the rulers he encountered, and invited them to travel in person or send envoys to China. There, they were to acknowledge their place in the Sinocentric world order by performing the ritual kowtow to acknowledge the emperor's superiority. Yet beyond declaring China's greatness and issuing invitations to portentous ritual, Zheng He displayed no territorial ambition. He brought back only gifts or tribute. He claimed no colonies or resources for China, beyond the metaphysical bounty of extending the limits of all under heaven. At most, he can be said to have created favorable conditions for Chinese merchants. Through a kind of early exercise of Chinese soft power, Deng He's expeditions stopped abruptly in 1433, coincident with the recurrence of threats along China's northern land frontier. 
The next emperor ordered the fleet dismantled, and the records of Zheng He's voyages destroyed. The expeditions were never repeated. Though Chinese traders continued to ply the routes Zheng He sailed, China's naval abilities faded. So much so that the Ming ruler's response to the subsequent menace of piracy off China's southeast coast was to attempt a forced migration of the coastal population ten miles inland. China's naval history was thus a hinge that failed to swing. Technically capable of dominance, China retired voluntarily from the field of naval exploration, just as Western interest was beginning to take hold. China's splendid isolation nurtured a particular Chinese self-perception. Chinese elites grew accustomed to the notion that China was unique, not just a great civilization among others, but civilization itself. A British translator wrote in 1850, "An intelligent European, accustomed to reflect on the state of a number of countries enjoying a variety of different advantages and labouring each under peculiar disadvantages, could, by a few well-directed questions and from very little data, form a tolerably correct notion of the state of a people hitherto unknown to him. But it would be a great error to suppose that this is the case with the Chinese. Their exclusion of foreigners." And confinement to their own country has, by depriving them of all opportunities of making comparisons, sadly circumscribed their ideas. They are thus totally unable to free themselves from the dominion of association, and judge everything by rules of purely Chinese convention. China knew, of course, of different societies around its periphery in Korea, Vietnam, Thailand, Burma. But in the Chinese perception, China was considered the center of the world, the Middle Kingdom, and other societies were assessed as gradations from it. As the Chinese saw it, a host of lesser states that imbibed Chinese culture and paid tribute to China's greatness constituted the natural order of the universe. The borders between China and the surrounding peoples were not so much political and territorial demarcations. As cultural differentiations, the outward radiance of Chinese culture throughout East Asia led the American political scientist Lucian Pai to comment famously that in the modern age, China remains a civilization pretending to be a nation-state. The pretensions underlying this traditional Chinese world order endured well into the modern era, as late as 1863. China's emperor, himself a member of a foreign Manchu dynasty that had conquered China two centuries earlier, dispatched a letter informing Abraham Lincoln of China's commitment to good relations with the United States. The emperor based his communication on the grandiloquent assurance that, having with reverence received the commission from heaven to rule the universe, we regard both the Middle Empire. China and the outside countries as constituting one family, without any distinction. Note: Anticipating that his colleagues in Washington would object to this proclamation of Chinese universal jurisdiction, the American envoy in Beijing obtained an alternate translation and textual exegesis from a local British expert. The latter explained that the offending expression literally. To soothe and bridle the world 
was a standard formulation, and that the letter to Lincoln was in fact a, by the Chinese court standards, particularly modest document whose phrasing indicated genuine goodwill. When the letter was dispatched, China had already lost two wars with the Western powers, which were busy staking out spheres of interest in Chinese territory. The emperor seems to have treated these catastrophes as similar to other barbarian invasions that were overcome in the end by China's endurance and superior culture. For most of history, there was in fact nothing particularly fanciful about Chinese claims. With each generation, the Han Chinese had expanded from their original base in the Yellow River Valley, gradually drawing neighboring societies into various stages of approximation of Chinese patterns. Chinese scientific and technological achievements equaled and frequently outstripped those of their Western European, Indian, and Arab counterparts. Not only was the scale of China traditionally far beyond that of the European states in population and in territory, until the Industrial Revolution, China was far richer. United by a vast system of canals connecting the great rivers and population centers, China was, for centuries, the world's most productive economy and most populous trading area. But since it was largely self-sufficient, other regions had only peripheral comprehension of its vastness and its wealth. In fact, China produced a greater share of total world GDP than any Western society in 18 of the last 20 centuries. As late as 1820, it produced over 30% of world GDP, an amount exceeding the GDP of Western Europe, Eastern Europe, and the United States combined. Western observers encountering China in the early modern era were stunned by its vitality and material prosperity. Writing in 1736, the French Jesuit Jean-Baptiste du Alde summed up the awestruck reactions of Western visitors to China. The riches peculiar to each province and the facility of conveying merchandise by means of rivers and canals have rendered the domestic trade of the empire always very flourishing. The inland trade of China is so great that the commerce of all Europe is not to be compared therewith, the provinces being like so many kingdoms which communicate to each other their respective productions. Thirty years later, the French political economist François Quenet went even further. No one can deny that this state is the most beautiful in the world, the most densely populated and the most flourishing kingdom known. Such an empire as that of China is equal to what all Europe would be if the latter were united under a single sovereign. China traded with foreigners and occasionally adopted ideas and inventions from abroad, but more often the Chinese believed that the most valuable possessions and intellectual achievements were to be found within China. Trade with China was so prized that it was with only partial exaggeration that Chinese elites described it not as ordinary economic exchange, but as tribute to China's superiority. Confucianism Almost all empires were created by force, but none can be sustained by it. Universal rule, to last, needs to translate force into obligation. Otherwise, 
The energies of the rulers will be exhausted in maintaining their dominance at the expense of their ability to shape the future, which is the ultimate task of statesmanship. Empires persist if repression gives way to consensus. So it was with China. The methods by which it was unified and periodically overturned and reunified again were occasionally brutal. Chinese history witnessed its share of sanguinary rebellions and dynastic tyrants. Yet China owed its millennial survival far less to the punishments meted out by its emperors than to the community of values fostered among its population and its government of scholar officials. Not the least exceptional aspect of Chinese culture is that these values were essentially secular in nature. At the time when Buddhism appeared in Indian culture, stressing contemplation and inner peace, and monotheism was proclaimed by the Jewish and later Christian and Islamic prophets with an evocation of a life after death, China produced no religious themes in the Western sense at all. The Chinese never generated a myth of cosmic creation. Their universe was created by the Chinese themselves, whose values, even when declared of universal applicability, were conceived of as Chinese in origin. The predominant values of Chinese society were derived from the prescriptions of an ancient philosopher, known to posterity as Kung Fu Zi, or Confucius, in the Latinized version. Confucius, 551 to 479 BC, lived at the end of the so-called Spring and Autumn period, 770 to 476 BC, a time of political upheaval that led to the brutal struggles of the Warring States period, 475 to 221 BC. The ruling house of Zhou was in decline, unable to exert its authority over rebellious princes competing for political power. Greed and violence went unchecked. All under heaven was again in disarray. Like Machiavelli, Confucius was an itinerant in his country, hoping to be retained as an advisor to one of the princes, then contending for survival. But unlike Machiavelli, Confucius was concerned more with the cultivation of social harmony than with the machinations of power. His themes were the principles of compassionate rule, the performance of correct rituals, and the inculcation of filial piety. Perhaps because he offered his prospective employers no short-term route to wealth or power, Confucius died without achieving his goal. He never found a prince to implement his maxims, and China continued its slide toward political collapse and war. But Confucius's teachings, recorded by his disciples, survived. When the bloodletting ended and China again stood unified, the Han Dynasty, 206 BC to AD 220, adopted Confucian thought as an official state philosophy. Compiled into a central collection of Confucius's sayings, the Analects, and subsequent books of learned commentary, the Confucian canon would evolve into something akin to China's Bible and its constitution combined. Expertise in these texts became the central qualification for service in China's imperial bureaucracy, a priesthood of literary scholar officials 
selected by nationwide competitive examinations and charged with maintaining harmony in the emperor's vast realms. Confucius's answer to the chaos of his era was the way of the just and harmonious society, which he taught had once been realized before in a distant Chinese golden age. Mankind's central spiritual task was to recreate this proper order already on the verge of being lost. Spiritual fulfillment was a task not so much of revelation or liberation, but patient recovery of forgotten principles of self-restraint. The goal was rectification, not progress. Learning was the key to advancement in a Confucian society. Thus Confucius taught that love of kindness without a love to learn finds itself obscured by foolishness. Love of knowledge without a love to learn finds itself obscured by loose speculation. Love of honesty without a love to learn finds itself obscured by harmful candor. Love of straightforwardness without a love to learn finds itself obscured by misdirected judgment. Love of daring without a love to learn finds itself obscured by insubordination. And love or strength of character without a love to learn finds itself obscured by intractability. Confucius preached a hierarchical social creed. The fundamental duty was to know thy place. To its adherents, the Confucian order offered the inspiration of service in pursuit of a greater harmony. Unlike the prophets of monotheistic religions, Confucius preached no teleology of history pointing mankind to personal redemption. His philosophy sought the redemption of the state through righteous individual behavior. Oriented toward this world, his thinking affirmed a code of social conduct, not a roadmap to the afterlife. At the pinnacle of the Chinese order stood the emperor, a figure with no parallels in the Western experience. He combined the spiritual as well as the secular claims of the social order. The Chinese emperor was both a political ruler and a metaphysical concept. In his political role, the emperor was conceived as mankind's supreme sovereign, the emperor of humanity standing atop a world political hierarchy that mirrored China's hierarchical Confucian social structure. Chinese protocol insisted on recognizing his overlordship via the kowtow, the act of complete prostration, with the forehead touching the ground three times on each prostration. The emperor's second metaphysical role was his status as the son of heaven, the symbolic intermediary between heaven, earth, and humanity. This role also implied moral obligation on the emperor's part. Through humane conduct, performance of correct rituals, and occasional stern punishments, the emperor was perceived as the linchpin of the great harmony of all things great and small. If the emperor strayed from the path of virtue, all under heaven would fall into chaos. Even natural catastrophes might signify that disharmony had beset the universe. The existing dynasty would be seen to have lost the mandate of heaven by which it possessed the right to govern. Rebellions would break out 
and a new dynasty would restore the great harmony of the universe. Concepts of international relations impartiality or equality. Just as there are no great cathedrals in China, there are no Blenheim palaces, aristocratic political grandees like the Duke of Marlborough, who built Blenheim, did not come into being. Europe entered the modern age a welter of political diversity. Independent princes and dukes and counts, cities that governed themselves, the Roman Catholic Church, which claimed an authority outside of state purview, and Protestant groups, which aspired to building their own self-governing civil societies. By contrast, when it entered the modern period, China had for well over 1,000 years a fully formed imperial bureaucracy recruited by competitive examination, permeating and regulating all aspects of the economy and society. The Chinese approach to world order was thus vastly different from the system that took hold in the West. The modern Western conception of international relations emerged in the 16th and 17th centuries, when the medieval structure of Europe dissolved into a group of states of approximately equal strength, and the Catholic Church split into various denominations. Balance of power diplomacy was less a choice than an inevitability. No state was strong enough to impose its will. No religion retained sufficient authority to sustain universality. The concept of sovereignty and the legal equality of states became the basis of international law and diplomacy. China, by contrast, was never engaged in sustained contact with another country on the basis of equality for the simple reason that it never encountered societies of comparable culture or magnitude. That the Chinese empire should tower over its geographical sphere was taken virtually as a law of nature an expression of the mandate of heaven. For Chinese emperors, the mandate did not necessarily imply an adversarial relationship with neighboring peoples. Preferably, it did not. Like the United States, China thought of itself as playing a special role. But it never espoused the American notion of universalism to spread its values around the world. It confined itself to controlling the barbarians immediately at its doorstep, it strove for tributary states, like Korea, to recognize China's special status, and in return, it conferred benefits, such as trading rights. As for the remote barbarians, such as Europeans, about whom they knew little, the Chinese maintained a friendly, if condescending, aloofness. They had little interest in converting them to Chinese ways. The founding emperor of the Ming Dynasty expressed this view in 1372. Countries of the Western Ocean are rightly called distant regions. They come to us across the seas, and it is difficult for them to calculate the year and month of arrival. Regardless of their numbers, we treat them on the principle of those who come modestly are sent off generously. The Chinese emperors felt it was impractical to contemplate influencing countries that nature had given the misfortune of locating at such a great distance from China. In the Chinese version of exceptionalism, China did not export its ideas, but let others come to seek them. Neighboring peoples, the Chinese believed, benefited from contact with China and civilization so long as they acknowledged 
the suzerainty of the Chinese government. Those who did not were barbarian. Subservience to the emperor and observance of imperial rituals was the core of culture. When the empire was strong, this cultural sphere expanded. All under heaven was a multinational entity comprising the ethnic Han Chinese majority and numerous non-Han Chinese ethnic groups. In official Chinese records, foreign envoys did not come to the imperial court to engage in negotiations or affairs of state. They came to be transformed by the emperor's civilizing influence. The emperor did not hold summit meetings with other heads of state. Instead, audiences with him represented the tender cherishing of men from afar, who brought tribute to recognize his overlordship. When the Chinese court deigned to send envoys abroad, they were not diplomats, but heavenly envoys from the celestial court. The organization of the Chinese government reflected the hierarchical approach to world order. China handled ties with tribute-paying states such as Korea, Thailand, and Vietnam through the Ministry of Rituals, implying that diplomacy with these peoples was but one aspect of the larger metaphysical task of administering the Great Harmony. With less sinicized mountain tribes to the north and west, China came to rely on a court of dependencies, analogous to a colonial office, whose mission was to invest vassal princes with titles and maintain peace on the frontier. Only under the pressure of Western incursions in the 19th century did China establish something analogous to a foreign ministry to manage diplomacy as an independent function of government in 1861, after the defeat in two wars with the Western powers. It was considered a temporary necessity to be abolished once the immediate crisis subsided. The new ministry was deliberately located in an old and undistinguished building previously used by the Department of Iron Coins to convey, in the words of the leading Qing dynasty statesman, Prince Gong, the hidden meaning that it cannot have a standing equal to that of other traditional government offices, thus preserving the distinction between China and foreign countries. European-style ideas of interstate politics and diplomacy were not unknown in the Chinese experience. Rather, they existed as a kind of counter-tradition taking place within China in times of disunity. But as if by some unwritten law, these periods of division ended with the reunification of all under heaven and the reassertion of Chinese centrality by a new dynasty. In its imperial role, China offered surrounding foreign peoples impartiality, not equality. It would treat them humanely and compassionately in proportion to their attainment of Chinese culture and their observance of rituals connoting submission to China. What was most remarkable about the Chinese approach to international affairs was less its monumental formal pretensions than its underlying strategic acumen and longevity. For during most of Chinese history, the numerous lesser peoples along China's long and shifting frontiers were often better armed and more mobile than the Chinese. To China's north and west were semi-nomadic peoples, the Manchus, Mongols, Uyghurs, Tibetans, 
and eventually the expansionist Russian Empire, whose mounted cavalry could launch raids across its extended frontiers on China's agricultural heartland with relative impunity. Retaliatory expeditions faced inhospitable terrain and extended supply lines. To China's south and east were peoples who, though nominally subordinate in the Chinese cosmology, possessed significant martial traditions and national identities. The most tenacious of them, the Vietnamese, had fiercely resisted Chinese claims of superiority and could claim to have bested China in battle. China was in no position to conquer all of its neighbors. Its population consisted mainly of farmers bound to their ancestral plots. Its Mandarin elite earned their positions not through displays of martial valor, but by way of mastery of the Confucian classics and refined arts, such as calligraphy and poetry. Individually, neighboring peoples could pose formidable threats. With any degree of unity, they would be overwhelming. The historian Owen Lattimore wrote, Barbarian invasion, therefore, hung over China as a permanent threat. Any barbarian nation that could guard its own rear and flanks against the other barbarians could set out confidently to invade China. China's vaunted centrality and material wealth would turn on itself and into an invitation for invasion from all sides. The Great Wall, so prominent in Western iconography of China, was a reflection of this basic vulnerability, though rarely a successful solution to it. Instead, Chinese statesmen relied on a rich array of diplomatic and economic instruments to draw potentially hostile foreigners into relationships the Chinese could manage. The highest aspiration was less to conquer, though China occasionally mounted major military campaigns, than to deter invasion and prevent the formation of barbarian coalitions. Through trade incentives and skillful use of political theater, China coaxed neighboring peoples into observing the norms of Chinese centrality while projecting an image of awesome majesty to deter potential invaders from testing China's strength. Its goal was not to conquer and subjugate the barbarians, but to rule them with a loose rein, jimi. For those who would not obey, China would exploit divisions among them, famously using barbarians to check barbarians, and when necessary, using barbarians to attack barbarians. For as a Ming Dynasty official wrote of the potentially threatening tribes on China's northeastern frontier, if the tribes are divided among themselves, they will remain weak, and it will be easy to hold them in subjection. If the tribes are separated, they shun each other and readily obey. We favor one or other of their chieftains and permit them to fight each other. This is a principle of political action which asserts wars between the barbarians are auspicious for China. The goal of this system was essentially defensive, to prevent the formation of coalitions on China's borders. The principles of barbarian management became so ingrained in Chinese official thought that when the European barbarians arrived on China's shores in force in the 19th century, Chinese officials described their challenge with the same phrases used by their dynastic predecessors. They would use barbarians against barbarians until they could be soothed and subdued. 
and they applied a traditional strategy to answer the initial British attack. They invited other European countries in for the purpose of first stimulating and then manipulating their rivalry. In pursuit of these aims, the Chinese court was remarkably pragmatic about the means it employed. The Chinese bribed the barbarians, or used Han demographic superiority to dilute them. When defeated, they submitted to them, as in the beginning of the Yuan and Qing dynasties, as a prelude to Sinicizing them. The Chinese court regularly practiced what, in other contexts, would be considered appeasement, albeit through an elaborate filter of protocol that allowed the Chinese elites to claim it was an assertion of benevolent superiority. Thus, a Han dynasty minister described the five baits with which he proposed to manage the mounted Songnu tribes to China's northwestern frontier. To give them elaborate clothes and carriages in order to corrupt their eyes, to give them fine food in order to corrupt their mouth, to give them music and women in order to corrupt their ears, to provide them with lofty buildings, granaries, and slaves in order to corrupt their stomach. And as for those who come to surrender, the emperor should show them favor by honoring them with an imperial reception party in which the emperor should personally serve them wine and food so as to corrupt their mind. These are what may be called the five baits. In periods of strength, the diplomacy of the Middle Kingdom was an ideological rationalization for imperial power. During periods of decline, it served to mask weakness and help China manipulate contending forces. In comparison to more recent regional contenders for power, China was a satisfied empire with limited territorial ambition. As a scholar during the Han Dynasty, A.D. 25 to 220, put it, "The emperor does not govern the barbarians. Those who come to him will not be rejected, and those who leave will not be pursued." The objective was a compliant, divided periphery, rather than one directly under Chinese control. The most remarkable expression of China's fundamental pragmatism was its reaction to conquerors. When foreign dynasties prevailed in battle, the Chinese bureaucratic elite would offer their services and appeal to their conquerors on the premise that so vast and unique a land as they had just overrun. Could be ruled only by use of Chinese methods, Chinese language, and the existing Chinese bureaucracy. With each generation, the conquerors would find themselves increasingly assimilated into the order they had sought to dominate. Eventually, their own home territories, the launching points for their invasions, would come to be regarded as part of China itself. They would find themselves pursuing traditional Chinese national interests. With the project of conquest effectively turned on its head. Note: Thus, the extension of Chinese sovereignty over Mongolia, both inner and at various points of Chinese history outer, and Manchuria, the respective founts of the foreign conquerors that founded the Yuan and Qing dynasties. Chinese realpolitik and Shunzu's art of war. The Chinese have been shrewd practitioners of realpolitik and students of a strategic doctrine distinctly different from the strategy and diplomacy that found favor in the West. A turbulent history has taught Chinese leaders 
that not every problem has a solution, and that too great an emphasis on total mastery over specific events could upset the harmony of the universe. There were too many potential enemies for the empire ever to live in total security. If China's fate was relative security, it also implied relative insecurity, the need to learn the grammar of over a dozen neighboring states with significantly different histories and aspirations. Rarely did Chinese statesmen risk the outcome of a conflict on a single all-or-nothing clash. Elaborate multi-year maneuvers were closer to their style. Where the Western tradition prized the decisive clash of forces, emphasizing feats of heroism, the Chinese ideal stressed subtlety, indirection, and the patient accumulation of relative advantage. This contrast is reflected in the respective intellectual games favored by each civilization. China's most enduring game is Wei Qi, often known in the West by a variation of its Japanese name Go. Wei Qi translates as a game of surrounding pieces. It implies a concept of strategic encirclement. The board, a grid of 19 by 19 lines, begins empty. Each player has 180 pieces, or stones, at his disposal, each of equal value with the others. The players take turns placing stones at any point on the board, building up positions of strength. While working to encircle and capture the opponent's stones, multiple contests take place simultaneously in different regions of the board. The balance of forces shifts incrementally with each move, as the players implement strategic plans and react to each other's initiatives. At the end of a well-played game, the board is filled by partially interlocking areas of strength. The margin of advantage is often slim. And to the untrained eye, the identity of the winner is not always immediately obvious. Chess, on the other hand, is about total victory. The purpose of the game is checkmate, to put the opposing king into a position where he cannot move without being destroyed. The vast majority of games end in total victory, achieved by attrition, or more rarely, a dramatic, skillful maneuver. The only other possible outcome is a draw. Meaning the abandonment of the hope for victory by both parties. If chess is about the decisive battle, Wei Qi is about the protracted campaign. The chess player aims for total victory. The Wei Qi player seeks relative advantage. In chess, the player always has the capability of the adversary in front of him. All the pieces are always fully deployed. The Wei Qi player needs to assess not only the pieces on the board, but the reinforcements the adversary is in a position to deploy. Chess teaches the Clausewitzian concepts of center of gravity and the decisive point. The game usually beginning as a struggle for the center of the board. Wei Qi teaches the art of strategic encirclement, where the skillful chess player aims to eliminate his opponent's pieces in a series of head-on clashes. A talented Wei Qi player moves into empty spaces on the board, gradually mitigating the strategic potential of his opponent's pieces. Chess produces single-mindedness. Wei Qi generates strategic flexibility. A similar contrast exists in the case of China's distinctive military theory. Its foundations were laid during a period of upheaval, when ruthless struggles between rival kingdoms. 
decimated China's population. Reacting to this slaughter and seeking to emerge victorious from it, Chinese thinkers developed strategic thought that placed a premium on victory through psychological advantage and preached the avoidance of direct conflict. The seminal figure in this tradition is known to history as Shunzi, or Master Sun, author of the famed treatise The Art of War. Intriguingly, no one is sure exactly who he was. Since ancient times, scholars have debated the identity of The Art of War's author and the date of its composition. The book presents itself as a collection of sayings by one Shun Wu, a general and wandering military advisor from the spring and autumn period of Chinese history, 770 to 476 BC, as recorded by his disciples. Some Chinese and later Western scholars have questioned whether such a master Sun existed, or if he did, whether he was in fact responsible for the art of war's contents. Note. A convincing case has been made that the art of war is the work of a later, though still ancient, author during the Warring States period, and that he sought to imbue his ideas with greater legitimacy by backdating them to the era of Confucius. Well over 2,000 years after its composition, this volume of epigrammatic observations on strategy, diplomacy, and war, written in classical Chinese, halfway between poetry and prose, remains a central text of military thought. Its maxims found vivid expression in the 20th century Chinese Civil War at the hands of Shunzi's student Mao Zedong and in the Vietnam Wars as Ho Chi Minh and Vo Nguyen Jap employed Shunzi's principles of indirect attack and psychological combat against France and then the United States. Shunzi has also achieved a second career of sorts in the West with popular editions of The Art of War, recasting him as a modern business management guru. Even today, Shunzu's text reads with a degree of immediacy and insight that places him among the ranks of the world's foremost strategic thinkers. One could argue that the disregard of his precepts was importantly responsible for America's frustration in its Asian wars. What distinguishes Shunzu from Western writers on strategy is the emphasis on the psychological and political elements over the purely military. The great European military theorists Karl von Clausewitz and Antoine-Henri Jomini treat strategy as an activity in its own right, separate from politics. Even Clausewitz's famous dictum that war is the continuation of politics by other means implies that with war, the statesman enters a new and distinct phase. Shunzi merges the two fields. Where Western strategists reflect on the means to assemble superior power at the decisive point, Shunzi addresses the means of building a dominant political and psychological position such that the outcome of a conflict becomes a foregone conclusion. Western strategists test their maxims by victories in battles. Shunzi tests by victories where battles have become unnecessary. Shunzi's text on war does not have the quality of exaltation of some European literature on the subject, nor does it appeal to personal heroism. Its somber quality is reflected in the portentous opening of The Art of War. 
War is a grave affair of the state. It is a place of life and death, a road to survival and extinction, a matter to be pondered carefully. And because the consequences of war are so grave, prudence is the value most to be cherished. A ruler must never mobilize his men out of anger. A general must never engage in battle out of spite. Anger can turn to pleasure. Spite can turn to joy. But a nation destroyed cannot be put back together again. A dead man cannot be brought back to life. So the enlightened ruler is prudent. The effective general is cautious. This is the way to keep a nation at peace and an army intact. What should a statesman be prudent about? For Shunzu, victory is not simply the triumph of armed forces. Instead, it is the achievement of the ultimate political objectives that the military clash was intended to secure. Far better than challenging the enemy on the field of battle is undermining an enemy's morale or maneuvering him into an unfavorable position from which escape is impossible. Because war is a desperate and complex enterprise, self-knowledge is crucial. Strategy resolves itself into a psychological contest. Ultimate excellence lies not in winning every battle, but in defeating the enemy without ever fighting. The highest form of warfare is to attack the enemy's strategy itself. The next, to attack his alliances. The next, to attack armies. The lowest form of war is to attack cities. Siege warfare is a last resort. The skillful strategist defeats the enemy without doing battle, captures the city without laying siege, overthrows the enemy state without protracted war. Ideally, the commander would achieve a position of such dominance that he could avoid battle entirely, or else he would use arms to deliver a coup de grace after extensive analysis and logistical, diplomatic, and psychological preparation. Thus, Shunzu's counsel that the victorious army is victorious first and seeks battle later. The defeated army does battle first and seeks victory later. Because attacks on an opponent's strategy and his alliances involve psychology and perception, Shunzu places considerable emphasis on the use of subterfuge and misinformation. When able, he counseled, feign inability. When deploying troops, appear not to be. When near, appear far. When far, appear near. To the commander following Shunzu's precepts, a victory achieved indirectly through deception or manipulation is more humane and surely more economical than a triumph by superior force. The art of war advises the commander to induce his opponent into accomplishing the commander's own aims or force him into a position so impossible that he opts to surrender his army or state unharmed. 
Perhaps Shunzu's most important insight was that in a military or strategic contest, everything is relevant and connected. Weather, terrain, diplomacy, the reports of spies and double agents, supplies and logistics, the balance of forces, historic perceptions, the intangibles of surprise and morale. Each factor influences the others, giving rise to subtle shifts in momentum and relative advantage. There are no isolated events. Hence, the task of a strategist is less to analyze a particular situation than to determine its relationship to the context in which it occurs. No particular constellation is ever static. Any pattern is temporary and, in essence, evolving. The strategist must capture the direction of that evolution and make it serve his ends. Shunzi uses the word "shi" for that quality, a concept with no direct Western counterpart. In the military context, "shi" connotes the strategic trend and potential energy of a developing situation, the power inherent in the particular arrangement of elements and its developmental tendency. In the art of war, the word connotes the ever-changing configuration of forces, as well as their general trend. To Shunzi, the strategist mastering shi is akin to water flowing downhill, automatically finding the swiftest and easiest course. A successful commander waits before charging headlong into battle. He shies away from an enemy's strength. He spends his time observing and cultivating changes in the strategic landscape. He studies the enemy's preparations and his morale. Husbands resources and defines them carefully, and plays on his opponent's psychological weaknesses, until at last he perceives the opportune moment to strike the enemy at his weakest point. He then deploys his resources swiftly and suddenly, rushing downhill along the path of least resistance, in an assertion of superiority that careful timing and preparation have rendered a fait accompli. The art of war articulates a doctrine less of territorial conquest than of psychological dominance. It was the way the North Vietnamese fought America, though Hanoi usually translated its psychological gains into actual territorial conquests as well. In general, Chinese statesmanship exhibits a tendency to view the entire strategic landscape as part of a single whole: good and evil. Near and far, strength and weakness, past and future—all interrelated. In contrast to the Western approach of treating history as a process of modernity achieving a series of absolute victories over evil and backwardness, the traditional Chinese view of history emphasized a cyclical process of decay and rectification, in which nature and the world can be understood. But not completely mastered. The best that can be accomplished is to grow into harmony with it. Strategy and statecraft become means of combative coexistence with opponents. The goal is to maneuver them into weakness, while building up one's own sure or strategic position. This maneuvering approach is, of course, the ideal, and not always the reality. Throughout their history, the Chinese have had their share of unsubtle and brutal conflicts, both at home and occasionally abroad. 
Once these conflicts erupted, such as during the unification of China under the Qin dynasty, the clashes of the Three Kingdoms period, the quelling of the Taiping Rebellion, and the 20th century civil war, China was subjected to wholesale loss of life on a level comparable to the European world wars. The bloodiest conflicts occurred as a result of the breakdown of the internal Chinese system. In other words, as an aspect of internal adjustments of a state for which domestic stability and protection against looming foreign invasion are equal concerns.